Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 11, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. Again, I'm author of Spiritual Grit, The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, all of which, by the way, are great companions on the way to Easter. We can see Easter over the horizon now, and we'll say a little bit more about this at the very end, but if you're looking for companions to help you along the way to kind of rivet your attention on Jesus in the midst of all the other chaos and confusion and distraction that's going on around you. We have the Jesus-centered Bible and a companion journals and companion devotions that can go with that. And, and these two books, Spiritual Grid and The Jesus-Centered Life, also would be sort of a friend. Sometimes when you read a really good book, they become a friend and a companion, almost that when you're at the end of the book, you wish you could still keep reading because you, you just want to journey a little further with that friend. Well, These two books could also be friends along the journey for you. So here we go. We're in the middle of a series that we're calling Death to Life. And it's the two here that I really want to emphasize. It's death to life. We don't get hung up in the death part of this. In the kingdom of God, death is always leading to life. And life is at the core of the kingdom of God. So death to life is this seasonal sort of rhythm that we live in physically and even in down to the micro niche of our cells it's all death to life surrounding us and jesus has embedded this rhythm in all of creation to remind us of the kingdom of god rhythm that's been set into place that life comes out of death and so death in all of its forms in the kingdom of god is an open door into life and today we have the beckonator back with us fresh off of what what have you, what have you been doing Oh my gosh. I mean, I've only been home one weekend this entire month and I'm leaving tomorrow morning at bright and early for Dallas for the more than me event in Dallas. Um, I've been to Seattle. I was in Spokane for a weekend last weekend, even though I was home, I'm making parentheses. Um, I was volunteering at the youth hockey tournament all weekend from Friday all the way to Sunday. There was kids high school level kids coming from all over the Pacific Northwest to compete. And man, is it a serious event that happens. Beautiful bend, outdoor hockey rink. It was a great weekend, but lots of stuff. I was, of course, in charge of merchandising and fundraising. So, (laughs) Of course. The Becky Nader and I were talking yesterday about this episode. The last thing I said to her was, your name is the Becky Nader for a reason. There's all (laughs) kinds of things she's innating. Wherever she goes, she innates. So even in the hockey world. You, you mentioned something the, uh, yesterday too about something I'd never heard about before, Corn Dog Day. And I thought, wow, there's whole worlds that I'm not even aware of. So apparently- yeah, it's a big you, deal. Corn Dog it Day happens in Oregon. Every other, every other year, once in Redding, California, and then the other time this year it's in Bend, Oregon, because the two people who started it used to live in Redding together. And now they trade corn dog day and it's a massive thing and you drink beer and eat corn dogs until you throw up so if anybody's interested it's happening in Oregon this year it sounds like something that would be the focus of an episode of the simpsons <laughs> corn dog day. 
Well, gang, uh, on today's episode, we're going to tackle one of the great and loud sacred cows of the Christian life. Something that if I think if you've grown up in the church, you have heard this over and over again. If this is something you're expected to embrace and live out and honor in your Christian life, even though most everyone doesn't know how to do this and we don't know exactly what it is or understand it. Nevertheless, we live under this imperative, and that thing is dying to yourself. Dying to yourself. If This is a phrase and a concept that shows up everywhere in Scripture, from Jesus and Paul and really all of the apostolic writings. It's a theme that runs underneath them. It's so everywhere that I think it's important first to get a snootful of this just to kind of acclimate ourselves. So we get it often from Paul in Galatians 2. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In Ephesians 4, he talks about leaving behind our old sinful nature, our former way of life, and letting the Spirit renew our thoughts and attitudes. In Philippians 3, my new church preached on Philippians 3 on Sunday, and so I was deep into this. But in the middle of that, Paul says, all of this stuff that he used to identify with, all these accomplishments, all of his identity as the Pharisee of Pharisees, all of these things that were looked up to by his culture and his society, he considers that all garbage now, and he's given all of that away so that he can live his new life with Jesus. So you get all this stuff from Paul, and he, and he talks about this sort of thing, this exchange, this death to life of yourself all throughout his letters. And then from Jesus, we get a couple of kind of iconic things that Jesus says. One's in Luke 9, where he says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. How much more blunt could he be? <laughs> Can't hang on to your life. You got to give up your life for my sake to save it. And then in John 12, he references this seasonal thing that we talked about in our very first episode. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels and therefore a plentiful harvest. So here Jesus is talking about the seed is really us and we have to die in order to have life. And so in the church, Becky, growing up in the church, we both heard this message, you must die to yourself. And how did you translate that? in your former self. How do you think average people translate this message of dying to yourself? Well, I think we think it's about dying to sinful behavior that is innately built in us, that we're supposed to supposed to die to our worldly self and only have our other self. I also think that it means a lot of times that we feel like we have to be lower than other people, that we have to put our needs beneath the needs of other people and that we're supposed to serve from a lower position. And so there's a lot of, of good truths in a lot of that. There's a lot of really good truths. And I know that, that Jesus is always trying to find ways to keep me from that, to keep me from it and protect me from it so that I stay in a humble, dependent way with him. In fact, last week I was doing a podcast recording with former Miss Texas and I had the flu and I felt terrible. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, for keeping me on my level. <laughs> <laughs> it was a video recording with beautiful Miss Texas and I looked absolutely like death walking. So meaning, thank you, meaning, Jesus, for keeping me low. 
So meaning that he went out and killed yourself just to make sure yeah. you didn't get too prideful about who, who you are. Yeah. Reminded you yeah. really of how low you really are. <laughs> yeah, let's keep that in mind, Becky. You have fever blisters on your nose and you're on a video <laughs> podcast recording with former Miss Texas. You're welcome. You're welcome, Becky. So. <laughs> I love that because, you know, I mean, when you grow up in the church and you hear this message, dying to yourself and, and this sense that there's something ugly and dirty about this self because it's tainted by sin and and you need to get rid of it somehow. And we accept it on a certain sort of idealistic level or a 30,000 foot level. We accept it that this must be true. But when we get down into the trenches of our life, we really don't know what to do with this. What does it mean to die to yourself? Does it just mean being hyper self-critical? Does it mean like whatever thoughts went through your head right then when you were interviewing Miss Texas, those thoughts that say, yep, this must be for my own good because... I wouldn't want to get too big of a head here, or I, I don't want to come off looking good here because that'll be bad for me. It's sort of a, a generalized suspicion of ourself is what's planted in us, that mm -hmm. there's something not to be trusted or even enjoyed about ourself, and we're supposed to get rid of that self somehow, some way, but when it gets down to it, we don't really know how to do that. In fact, I would make the case that when we try to kill that self, and sort of replace it with the self of Jesus. I think we translate this as we're supposed to replace ourself, our ugly self with the beautiful self of Jesus. So that we're sort of like these empty containers or we have this interchangeable sort of engine that we can unplug from inside of us, toss it in the garbage can and Jesus will plug his self into the place where our old self used to be. And now we have the self of Jesus running us we have some kind of version of what that, we think it's supposed to look like that, but we actually don't know how to do that. As hard as we try to do that, it's the sense that we literally can't do that. We don't know how to throw out ourself without actually killing ourselves. It's as if God really never intended for us to murder ourselves. So whatever it is he's saying here, he must not mean it in the way that we take it. We hear John the Baptist say this when his disciples are talking about Jesus. He says, I must decrease so he can increase. So we hear that. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's what we need to do. We need to be like John the Baptist, and we need to decrease so Jesus can increase. And that's why we say things like um, when somebody compliments us, we say, oh, that was all Jesus, not me. We're trying to somehow, some way recognize what this death to self imperative means. But even when we say it's all Jesus, it's really not me, that is such a disingenuous thing to say. We all know it's not only Jesus when we do things. It's a mix somehow, the two. So, Well, so. and because in addition to all of these things that are said in the Bible, he also says that you're beautifully and wonderfully made and that he knit you together with intention and that he called you by name with purpose. And so... He didn't just design something that he wants to waste completely. He, he actually made you who you are. So we have to balance these tensions in the Bible. There's these very extreme things that are being said on both sides. One is like, you're totally wrong and we need to fix it. And the other one is you're intelligently designed and I made you on purpose and called you for that purpose. Yeah, it's so good. And when he's encountering Nicodemus, the Pharisee mm -hmm. who's so, so learned Jesus's whole focus with Nicodemus is, hey, Nicodemus, learned man that you are, you need to be born over again. 
He, uh, so it, even when he's talking to Nicodemus about this, he is not saying that the, the true self of you, Nicodemus, needs to be killed and replaced by myself. He's saying you must be born over again. The you that is you, Nicodemus, needs a restart. And it still will be you on the other side of that restart. It's not the obliteration of yourself or the trading out of yourself. It's a new start for the self. So a new reality that's tied to your kingdom identity, your kingdom of God identity, that is your real self. Jesus is not denigrating the self, but we do live, just as you just said so well, that we live in this tension between, well, what is it we're supposed to do then, Jesus? Is that thing, is that self I'm supposed to throw away in the garbage? Or is it beautiful? What, what is it? We're confused. So we do have a complex relationship with ourself. I think uh, often the most painful thing that we experience in life is when our self is attacked at its roots. And I, I, by, I mean by that when our very identity or our motivations are called into question. And it's really, really hard to stand very long in the full stream of that fire hose when someone is critiquing or attacking the foundations of our identity. And so maybe, Becky, we could spend a few minutes here talking about what that feels like when that part of your identity is attacked and the difference between that and when something, let's say, your false self is surfaced in you. What's the difference between the two? It's interesting. I've just this week, which is, you know, the way Rick likes to roll in my life is like, Hey, what's Becky like currently learning that we could publicly have her talk about on this podcast so that she can digest it in this environment. So nice of him. That is Don't how ever- I roll. I'm just like, Jesus. that's how he rolls. And so this week I've just been getting a ton of feedback that's been cloaked in criticism Some of it was not cloaked, but some of it was cloaked. And I'm starting to see this pattern. And I think that it's something that God wants me to pay attention to is when I look at it, I think that there's a difference between these rooted ways that God made us that are beautiful, that are a gift to the people around us and to ourself. There's a difference between that and bad behavior. And in fact, I was speaking with someone yesterday and they said to me, oh, well, that person's never going to change. It's just their personality. And I stopped them and I said, actually, that's not their personality. This is actually bad behavior that's happening. And there's a difference. And sometimes I think we intercommingle those two ideas. That was interesting what you just said. So this idea that when you responded and said, that person said, oh, that's just their personality. What they really meant, isn't it, is that that's their core identity. That's what's really true about them. Right. And, and you took issue with that because of what? I took issue with that because I know it's not what's true of, of them. I know that this is something that is actually separate from the way that God made them and separate from most of the encounters that I've had. And that to make that statement and let it hold true would mean that I would have to let that become the way that I saw that person and their identity. And also that that might end up being the way that they see themselves as well. And behavior is something that Jesus comes in and he gently pulls those weeds. He does it, not us. And so sometimes we have to see past people's weeds and see truly past all of that so that we can see the the true identity of that person that God made. But sometimes we decide to make what's a weed true about that person. And so when they said that, I had to correct them because 
I don't want that to be in my life the way that people see me. The other thing that I think happens is when someone sees the good things about you and then they call them negative things. And so for instance, in my life, I'm a planner. That's the way God made me. It, that my planning and the way that I plan and pre-plan benefits myself and a lot of people around me. And it's also part of the things that have made me successful and made it possible for other people to be successful. And so someone was criticizing me for being a planner. They were saying that that was a negative attribute of me and that it bothered them about me. And it could have been very easy for me to confuse myself, like, oh, that must be bad behavior. But I had to stop and say, actually, that's the way God made me. And it's a really beneficial thing. And it's a true part of my identity. And I really don't appreciate you criticizing that. You know, what's, what's great about what this story you're telling right there is that I think it so well illustrates the, the two selves we're in tension with. The, if you think about, uh, you've, you've probably seen at least the aftermath of that race, the Tough Mudder. Now they have them everywhere where people go through incredible obstacles. And the whole point is that they come out at the finish line if they survive the race, looking completely caked in mud and dirt and grime. That's some of what we're talking about sometimes is that people have a casing of mud around them. And instead of saying, there's mud hanging onto you, we say, you are the mud. That mud is actually you. And that's what I hear you saying, that we mistake the outer surface, the outer shell that we're experiencing as true all the way to the core. And this can be quite difficult because people develop that outer shell, what we might call the self that we uh, construct, the self we construct in order to deal with the pain and heartbreak and challenge that we face in life. All of us go through these kinds of heartbreaks and pains when we're children and we construct a self to help us survive that, to help us get past that into adulthood. And that constructed self stays with us. It could stay with you your whole life if you don't shed it at some point. If you don't stand in front of the hose, for instance, you could wear that mud your whole life. And the longer you live with that mud on you, the more the people around you start to associate the mud with who you are. That's that slight nuance shift from you've done something wrong to you are wrong. One of my aunts is passing away and she just had a timorous relationship with the family and she's going to die in the next few days. And it's really hard because God doesn't, he gives us a choice. That's actually an act of love. That's one of the attributes of how he's a good God is that he gives us a choice. If he removed that choice, he really wouldn't be a good God. He wouldn't be a loving God. And that love is that he says, I see you regardless of the mud. I see the true identity of you, but I'm going to give you the choice of whether or not you want to live with this mud on you. That's actually a choice you get to make. And I love you either way. You can die with the mud still on you. You can choose that life. The challenge here is discerning between, you know, what, what is the mud and what is us? Even we get profoundly confused by which is which in our own life. That's what leaves us vulnerable to outside editors, I'll call them. We, we talk a lot about being surrounded by mirrors. We see ourselves in the mirrors around us, but we're also surrounded by editors. People who are sort of, I won't say malevolently paying attention to us, but they're not paying attention to us 
for the purpose of surfacing and honoring the beauty that they taste in us. They're paying attention to us to find out the flaws and every little speck of mud that's left on us, where whatever it is, and they want to be helpful editors in our life. So they point out what they think should be edited out of our life, and really that comes from a place of insecurity themselves. People who are secure don't go around editing other people. Now, people who are secure do respond to how they're experiencing us. So for instance, if you're experiencing someone, let's say an arrogant way, you're experiencing their arrogance, is it wrongful editing to somehow shine a light on that arrogance? I would say when it comes to the false self, when it comes to the shell or constructed self, or you could say the mud on us, we have a, almost a calling because we, we have come to participate in Jesus helping to set captives free. That is our job description. That false constructed self is caging people. It's keeping them locked up in their own cell it's diminishing their impact in the world and the freedom that they experience. We, it would be wrong to not try to be present and available to help set those captives free. So if it's arrogance you're picking up, there must be ways that we can reflect back to that person how we're experiencing them to surface into the light some of that false constructed self that is protecting something. People who are arrogant are always protecting something. So how can we help them lay down their protection and open themselves to trust and be vulnerable? So that part of the feedback that we get in life where it comes from a redemptive place is very worthwhile, but it's sometimes hard to know the difference between bad editing and good editing or <laughs> editing that comes from a good place and, and editing that comes from a bad place. So I've said the words constructed cells a number of times, and we can talk about the purpose they serve. But in my life, the constructed self that I lived with for a long time was because of the home that I grew up in, which had, how can I say this uh, gently, it had narcissistic elements to the environment that I grew up in. Of course, when you're a kid, you don't know that. And so I'm growing up in an environment where I'm sort of invisible. The only thing that matters is what matters to those that are in charge of the family. And so I grew up feeling like I was invisible. And that was a scary thought for a kid. Like there's nothing inside of me where there's supposed to be something. And so I constructed a self. I would say it was the good Rick that I constructed around myself. I manufactured the sort of guy that I thought would be a good guy. And I lost touch with any sense of what was at my core. And what really freed me in my life was as I grew older, I was around people who had the courage and wisdom and gentleness mostly to reflect back to me what they were experiencing in that constructed self. And they essentially what they did was they asked for, for more. They asked for whatever was really at my core instead of what I was giving them, which was this constructed self. And in asking for it, it surfaced the fact that I had a constructed self, and then I had to decide what I was gonna do about it. Would I admit it? Would I let people look at it? Would I let counselors describe it to me? Would I let counselors tell me why I constructed that self and what purpose it served? And would I let people invite me to lay it down? Would I respond to those invitations or not? And really, my whole life with Jesus turned on this question as to whether I would continue to use that constructed self as a safety mechanism or whether I would have the courage and vulnerability to lay it down. When you think about this idea of constructed self, Becky, how does that resonate for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I also was raised in the same environment as Rick. So I remember the first time he said, like, I was raised to be, I actually think you said I was raised to be a nothing. Yeah. Um, and I was like nodding in my heart. Like, I know what it's like to be raised to be a nothing and to also to just always be criticized for a long time about the good things about myself and then to grow into an adult and not actually know what was good about me. It was very confusing to go into becoming an adult and especially coming into becoming a Christian and reading all of this stuff about like your old self and your new self and everything about myself was wrong. I stumbled and I've talked about this where I was at a place in my life where every opinion that was thrown in my direction was taken directly into my heart. Mm. I was like the sea that was being tossed back and forth and I had no real strong identity because of it. And I desperately wanted to be a good person who followed Jesus, but I didn't know what the difference between my behavior, my sin my identity. I didn't know what was what in that. And so I would say that a lot of people probably you're listening right now and you're raising your hand and saying, yeah, that's me right now. I don't know the difference. And it took a lot of time and it took a lot of people like Rick and like Steph and other people who have come into my life who have said, I'm going to show you this is something that's really true about who you are. This is good. And so then I was like, oh, really? That's good. Hmm. Okay. So then when I get criticism now and I look at that and I say, well, wait a minute, you're criticizing what's good about me. That's not going to work. You know, what's strategic about what you're saying too here, Becky, is that in order to do what you said you just did, you have to have a sense of what your kingdom of God's self is. Mm -hmm. And when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and said, you have to be born again, of course, he's using a metaphor again. He's using metaphoric language, something that Nicodemus could understand. We all understand what a birth means. So he's really saying you have to have the revelation, of your true kingdom of God's self released in you. This shell, this constructed self you're living under has to be laid down and the true self of who you are has to be born into existence to actually start to live. Your true self needs to start to live. And the only way that happens is through the regeneration of our attachment to Jesus. When we are that dead branch attached to that living vine, the vine's life comes seeping up into the branch. And the fruit that appears then out of that branch is the kingdom of God's self that we are. That fruit is beautiful and nourishing and helpful in the world. That It only comes, though, when the life of Jesus comes creeping up inside of us, pushing out that growth, which is the public expression of our identity. You can call it, that's just their personality. You can say whatever it is, but it's the essence of that person that you experience when you're with them. That's the regenerated self. And it's also that regenerated self that the enemy of God desperately wants to destroy. Mm -hmm. It's the regenerated self that is a danger to him in the end. The false constructed self is actually a great tool in his hand. He would love for us to hold on to that as long as possible because he leverages us with that false self because we have a sense deep inside that we're not living out of our true self. We may not know how to, but we have this deep sense I'm not living out of that place. 
And that's where the enemy takes great leverage in our life. He attacks that incongruence in us. This is why Jesus said to his disciples as he was heading to the cross, hey, the enemy's coming for me, but he has nothing in me. What Jesus was saying is, there's nothing to leverage in me. He's coming after me, but he can't leverage any constructed self, any facade in me. There's nothing to leverage, so he's got no shot at me. Well, I was just going to say that when we talk about partnering with the Holy Spirit to set captives free, well, what does that mean? I don't even know where to start. One of the ways that you can do that is if you start to identify, you can help people identify what's true about them, that you can point out. We, we have a tendency to want to be critics all around us. It's like our natural tendency. And so it's surprising what happens when you stop being a critic. You say, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit take care of that. And I'm instead going to be a person who points out what's truly good about people. And what happens is they're just as confused as I was. And they're like, really, that's good about me. Interesting. And so what happens is they start to focus on what's good about them. And they start to say to people, hey, I'm not going to accept this false identity that you're putting on. And then the Holy Spirit can focus on the other stuff. That's your partnership with the Holy Spirit is in that process. I think that we think, oh, setting captives free means I need to go tell everybody what's wrong about them. And I love what Rick said about people who are secure don't go around editing people. But as Christians, I think we kind of think that our duty and responsibility is in the editing process. I love that. And the, the idea here that you would pay attention to the beauty in others is not put a blindfold on. I don't really experience all of you. It's none of that. It's uh, what I call that, this is going to sound funny, but I call that practice positive labeling. So when we talk about labeling people, it's almost universally negative. If you label somebody, it's really a, a negative thing to say. But what about positive labeling where you're paying ridiculous attention to the people in your life, you're experiencing their essence, and then you name what you experience. If we don't say it or communicate it, they won't know. That's really the truth. If you don't speak it out, and say, here's what I really love in my experience of you. Here's how you just impacted me. Here's what you do that is rare. I don't get this from anyone else. Here's what I really appreciate that's unique about you. Those kinds of things take courage on our behalf because we're paying ridiculous attention to the people around us, and we're looking for the kingdom of God in them. And we're then calling out the kingdom of God. And what our kind of our default response to this typically is to push back. You've already said this, Becky. The first time you do this or somebody says this to you, it's unbelievable to us. We tend to go to conspiracy theories. Well, what are they trying to do here? Is that really true? How, how can I really trust that? Oh, they probably have some reason to say that to me right now. We find all kinds of ways to not receive it. So it's not like flipping a switch. This kind of feedback has to be sort of immersive feedback to the point where the person does begin to trust a little bit to receive that this could be true. There's an encounter I want us to take a quick look at here that we have looked at before. It's a classic encounter. It's one of the longest accounts of any encounter Jesus had with anyone. But I think it involves exactly what we're talking about, the exposure of the constructed self and the invitation to the kingdom of God's self to come out and play. So this is in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well outside the city walls of Sychar. And 
here the disciples and Jesus arrive and it's midday and it's hot and they're thirsty and Jesus sends his disciples into town to get food and Jesus waits alone at the well outside of town and it's the middle of the day and there's a woman there, a Samaritan woman who has come to the well in the middle of the day on purpose because she doesn't want to go when the women usually go to the well and they talk and, and reestablish their friendship and she's alone. She has no friendships like that. She doesn't want to be criticized all over again. So she comes when no one else comes. And she meets Jesus there and he asks her to give him a drink. And the woman is surprised and she says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Think about this. Jesus comes to set captives free. He is, he's about to target and surface her constructed self. And he intends to call out to play her kingdom of God self, the self created by God. So watch very carefully how he enters into this with this woman. And then Becky and I will talk about this. So Jesus says, if you only knew the gift of God that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. And the woman says, well, you don't have a bucket or a rope. And do you think you're better than her ancestors? How, how are you going to get, how are you going to get water? And Jesus says back to her, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. He's pointing to the well now. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And the woman's like, oh my gosh, where can I get this water? Please give it to me. I don't want to be thirsty again. And then Jesus, oh man, here, here's where he, he turns the tables on her. He says, go and get your husband first. So now he's about to surface the constructed self. He's established rapport with her. He's made her a promise of something that really appeals to her. He's got her interested. She's hooked. And then he says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. There's the constructed self that he has surfaced. And the woman goes, sir, you must be a prophet. <laughs> so then she, and then she goes on a tangent. It's almost like this is too uncomfortable. This is too deep, too quickly. So she changes the subject in midstream. She starts to talk about worship and why the Jews say you can only worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus takes her diversion tactic and warps it back and says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He's, he's taking her thing and saying, look, what I'm about to invite you into is to be in relationship with the Messiah. So pretty soon for you, it's not going to matter where you worship because you'll be worshiping me no matter where you are. So then the woman says, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain all this stuff to us. And Jesus responds to her. He couldn't be more declarative. I am the Messiah. I'm him. I'm the guy. So then the disciples come back and they're shocked. They see him talking to this woman. They're, they're like, what, what are you doing, Jesus? And the woman, meanwhile, takes off, leaves her water jar, runs back to the village. She tells everyone, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And the people come streaming out of the village to see Jesus. And his disciples, meanwhile, are urging him to eat something. And he says, I have a kind of food you don't know anything about. He's eating already. He's saying, the, the, my whole purpose, I'm living it out right now. I don't need food right now. I'm filled with what's happening right now. I'm inviting this woman out of her 
created self or constructed self into a real self. In the end, what happens is that all of the people of the village then experience Jesus and they tell the woman, hey, we don't have to take it from you anymore. We believe this guy's the real deal. So this story, Becky, what sticks out to you about what Jesus does in this story with this woman? When you think about what he's trying to do with her. Well, this is one of those encounters where Jesus is such a master. I hear it and I think, gosh, would I handle this right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> or would I, like, is it just Jesus that was able to be so masterful in pointing out someone's sin like that? Was it like, if I had said that, would she have gotten offended and walked away? Because we definitely have had encounters where we, we maybe tried this or thought we were doing it the right way and it ended up blowing up in our faces. And so maybe now we just kind of avoid it all together. He doesn't really like he, he says, I know who you are and I know what's going on. I know why you're at the well at this time, I, but he doesn't actually criticize her or shame nope. her. Nope. He doesn't actually even criticize or edit or anything. He just says like, I know why you're not, I know why you're here at this time of day. And I know what's going on. He says, yeah, he makes a statement. He says, yeah, that's right. You don't have a husband. And <laughs> here's the rest of that story. So what he's saying is, I see your facade, your constructed self. I see it right there. I'm just going to peer around it here for a second. It's funny what the woman says to all of her villagers is, he told me everything about myself. The self I've constructed, the self I've put out there, he saw it for what it was. Wow. This couldn't be more profound. Jesus describing and seeing exactly what that constructed self is. And, and he's saying to her, I see that, and I'm inviting you. Come out from behind your wall. Drink the living water. Eat the living bread. Come out from behind your wall, and let's you and I, in reality, be in relationship. Come out from behind all that stuff. You're so right, Becky. He doesn't criticize it. He invites her out from behind it somehow. The other part of the story is that after this encounter, her story has a huge impact and it. it says that many Samaritans believed and actually begged Jesus to stay. So he called her into a relationship and then her impact on her surrounding people resulted in a lot more people coming to know him. And I think one of the things that I'm really seeing is that God called unprepared people to do his work. And he knew exactly what he was, that he knew the maturity level, the wisdom level, the knowledge level, the sin level. He knew all of it and he called them anyways. And part of that is because he wants us to know that you couldn't do it on your own. <laughs> um, it's part of that dependence thing. And I think a lot of times I talk to people women specifically who are like, well, I just got to get this together before I could ever be called out into the next phase. And he calls us in our immaturity, Becky at 27, Becky at 37, totally different maturity levels. I couldn't force my way into wisdom or maturity. It had to happen over time, but he still called me into things that I wasn't prepared for at 27. And he calls young people into things that they're not mature enough to handle. And oftentimes when they do that, and then they are immature or whatever, we're like, well, look at that. This is why you have to wait until you're about 65 to do anything for Jesus, right? <laughs> but actually, 
know, he knows exactly what he's calling you into because he sees behind all of it. And he's like, Hey, I can deal with the mud. It might take some time, but I'm still going to call you into this and we'll deal with the mud while we're going through it. What he's really saying it, this sounds so simple, but it's so profound. I want relationship. The fact that he calls us into things that cause us to be dependent on him guarantees that if we're honest people who are pursuing him, we are going to be dependent on him in the midst of it, which guarantees relationship, guarantees ongoing connection. He wants to do stuff together. And to the extent that we feel like we don't really need anyone else, we don't really need a partner. We got this covered. We are excising ourselves from relationship which is the end game for Jesus. He wants relationship. One last thing about this story that strikes me is in her constructed self, the woman comes out to the well at noon when no other women are around. She has a protective casing around her because of years of pain and brokenness that is represented by her story. She wants nothing to do with the editors in her village. She doesn't want to stand there and listen to their criticism anymore, so she's alone. Her first response when she is invited out from behind that wall is to put her jar down and run back to the village and tell all of the people she was trying to avoid before, I think your way of life is standing out there by the well. This man, I think, is the Messiah. Her first inclination when she steps into her true kingdom of God self is to give. Before she was protecting, now she's extending herself beyond her vulnerability they must have been shocked to see this woman. They must have been skeptical at first because she's had nothing to do with them. And for good reason, they, they don't like her. <laughs> she's, the, she's the talk of the town. And yet here's this woman wanting to give, the most valuable thing she could give was to connect them with Jesus. And that's the first thing she does after this. When you come out from behind your constructed self, you start to live out of who you really are. And just like that fruit appearing on the end of your branch, you just want to nourish people with whatever it is that's sprouting up in your life. You can't help yourself. You want them to eat and be nourished. And that's what the woman does. Go read yeah. it. That's what it's I so say. good. It's a yeah. long story. We could barely touch the surface, but it's a good one. It's a good one to sink into using these filters that we were just talked about. So, so to wrap up here, let's talk a little bit about how this gets lived out in our everyday life. We have these two forks in the road here. We have feedback about the constructed self that we actually need in our life. And then we have critical feedback about our kingdom of God self that we need to set boundaries around that kind of stuff. So when we talk about this whole death to self thing in everyday life, let me throw something out here at the start. We do not stand for or allow attacks or deconstructions or deceptions about our kingdom of God self. We were talking about this earlier, Becky, that we do not, Jesus said, throw our pearls before swine, which means you don't throw your beauty, the thing that is most valuable, created by Jesus about yourself, and throw it in front of pigs who have no understanding of that beauty and would either ignore it or defecate on it, one of the two, but they don't understand the purpose and beauty of those pearls. Jesus is saying you don't do that in front of pigs. When we talk about this whole idea of not standing for or allowing this kind of feedback, how do you know the difference between that kind of feedback, Becky, and feedback that actually could help you because it's surfacing part of that false constructed self about you? 
the difference I think is, is somebody attacking your weed or your root? And if they're attacking your root, which is your identity, that has to be addressed. But if they're attacking your weed, then I think that you have to take some time to say, okay, God, like this weed keeps showing up and I can't do anything about it. So I need you to go and be my gardener and help me to pull it. Yeah. And our ability to be vulnerable in this process really comes from Jesus. It's too difficult. We've experienced too much pain and brokenness to assume that we can have the courage to be as vulnerable as we need to in this process and to know the difference between what I'll accept and what I won't. We need the spirit of Jesus who created us to help us discern the difference between those two things. When we will stand and when we will allow in, in a vulnerable way, feedback that is starting to ask us to come out from behind our wall. When those around us say, yes, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're living with isn't your husband right now, that is an invitation. And if we get that kind of invitation in our life, it takes vulnerability and it takes the courage the spirit gives us, but it is an invitation to come out from behind our wall, recognizing, I had a counselor just tell me this not long ago that was really profound for me. He said, Rick, never forget that that constructed self was very useful to the child who created it. It allowed them to survive, so don't denigrate it. The fact that it is destructive now in your adult life has nothing to do with its original purpose, which allowed you to survive. So don't denigrate it. When you lay it down, you lay it down with honor and respect, not with angry, critical words about why am I this way? Why do I always do that? We don't treat it like that. We treat it with respect because of why it was created in the first place. But we do feel compelled to lay it down and let him help us with that. There's only one other thing I would say about this is, and this was pointed out to me just yesterday, is if somebody is continuing to attack your true self and you continue to put yourself back in that position over and over and over and over and over and over again, like I am, then, you know, that is casting your pearls before swine. And so perhaps you need to stop putting yourself before the person who keeps doing that. And that's a hard decision, but it's, and it's sometimes it's usually the, a very painful relationship to recognize, but if that's happening, that is me continuing to cast my pearls before swine. And in that process, of course, we know kind of implicit in that is that we, it, it is on us to give feedback about when those who are going after our true self, we give them feedback and boundary setting to give them an opportunity for themselves to repent, to consider what they're doing and repent. That it's the unrepentant person who continues to do that, that once you have given them opportunity to repent or turn back from that kind of behavior, that you may have to make that decision. I can't any longer be around you because you're unrepentant in this. So this idea that we have a constructed self, it really means it helps to understand also all the times when we see in scripture, it talks about we're at war inside where Paul talks in Romans, I'm at war with myself. Well, he's at war between the constructed self, the mud that he's carrying and the new true reborn self that he now experiences. Yes, there's tension between these two things, but the enemy of God, again, was going to use that constructed self against us if he possibly can 
because he wants us to live in incongruence. He wants us to believe that the mud is, our, is us. So in the end, our life process is a process of laying down that constructed self over time to pick up the real self. And the tension becomes less and less over time then. As we live into that, the tension becomes less and less. So the last thing I have here is just this encouragement to embrace and invite and honor the input from others that's designed to uphold and surface and honor the kingdom of God in you. We are thirsty for that, just like the Samaritan woman was thirsty for the living water. But Jesus is giving her living water. He's offering her relationship with the Messiah. So we are thirsty for that too. So we invite it. We ask for it. We, we put ourselves around people who are that are source of that in our lives. And we set boundaries around people and inputs that intend to target that true self. We are alert to it. We are not willing for that true self to be destroyed on any level. Any last words here, Becky, before we close off? Any, anything that you left on the table? The last thing I would say just to add to that is, and also we're invited to be that to people, that we're invited to look for the true things in others and point it out. And not in a way that's surfacey and just like because you wanted to give them a surface level compliment, just like how he was saying, like a surface level compliment, you'll be hungry for another one in a minute. But something that is really true and goes deep into the heart about that person, it's like living water. It just keeps on giving. So you're invited to be a partner with the Holy Spirit to do that. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but at further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're just going to find our podcast section there in season four, episode 11. By the way, I thought about this as we were talking. My friend, Mike Warden, is a professional coach. He's really quite brilliant. Uh, he's not a coach of a football team. He's a life coach. He's a, he does a variety of things, but he's a very impactful person. And one of the things he does, he does two things to help people identify and live out of their kingdom of God self. One is for men. It's called the Brave Heart Intensive. The other is for women. It's called the Destiny Project. I just heard a man who went through a Brave Heart Intensive describe what that experience was like, and it had massive freedom from captivity impact in his life. It affected every area of his life. And the premise there is that once you know, embrace, and live out of who you really are, stuff starts to happen things change in your life. So we'll put a link to uh, Mike Warden and these two things that he offers. If you're interested, he does these all over the country. So I couldn't recommend it more highly. And also remember to check out uh, as we head toward Easter here, the Jesus Centered Bible, the journals, the companion devotions, we'll have those linked on the site as well. And or you can go to group.com and check them out there. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.